Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave US. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by interviewing world-class UX researchers and product management professionals, and they share with us their expert knowledge, learnings, and advice. My guest today is Karina Stukin. Karina is the VP of Product at Rome Digital, one of New Zealand's largest and most awarded full-service digital consultancies. She's also the virtual CEO of Villo, a recently launched Rome product that helps businesses to more effectively manage their visitor arrivals. Karina joined Rome in 2015 as their very first product manager at the time, the company was only 20 people, and it's since grown to over 100. In just five short years, Karina has built the product management practice from scratch to a team of over 17 people. Before moving to New Zealand, Karina graduated with a Bachelor of Engineering from the Nuremberg Institute of Technology, where she focused on software development and human-computer interaction. Having been both a developer and a UX designer before becoming a product manager, Karina brings a unique mix of experience that helps her to navigate the complexities, constraints, and challenges of delivering world-class digital products. A generous sharer of knowledge, Karina is also a regular speaker at meetups such as Product Tank and Product Talks here in Auckland. She's also a mentor for Product League. In mid-2020, Karina launched a blog on Substack called Products and Systems, where you can find spreadsheets, frameworks, and simple systems to help you organize your product life and to become a better product leader. Described by her colleagues as an ultra-organized, systematic, type A, super German, I'd say that we're in for a very good conversation today. And I'm not surprised at all that Karina has been able to achieve what she has or that two of our favorite topics are product analytics and productivity. More on those soon. Karina, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Brendan. That was the nicest introduction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, look, it's great to have you here. And just sort of touching on that super, super German um, comment there at the end of your introduction, it strikes me, and I don't have a whole bunch of experience with, with Germany myself, but it strikes me that New Zealand is possibly the least German place that I can think of. So what brought a super a, a Taipei super German here in the first place? Um, that's a good question. I was meant to come here just for a year. Um, it was kind of New Zealand was the furthest away from Germany I could go. Um, love Germany, by the way. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to get out there, get uncomfortable, see something new. And New Zealand was kind of always on my bucket list. Um, and yeah, seven years later, I'm still here. I clearly got stuck here. I think it, um, I mean, on a personal level, uh, it really um, it really amazed me how friendly people are here, how approachable they are. And I think from my previous, you know, super type A, uh, approach Kiwis have kind of helped me to soften that a little bit so I would say well, I would hope I now have like a bit more of a balanced approach to um, everything I do. Oh wonderful so what is it that's kept kept you here I mean you said you came for a year and now it's been seven you know what has, <laughs> it, what has it been about this place that you haven't been able to leave? Oh I think it's just um the people here, um, I also met someone here, so that's obviously a big contributing factor. Uh, 
but also I just love, I mean, I grew up in, like in the city and, and, you know, typical busy city life and, and just coming here, spending more time in the outdoors. I mean, New Zealand is really one of a kind. I think I watched your last uh, episode with um, Spotify's Phil Gordon and he said he traveled to New Zealand um, and found that the green is kind of like greener here than everywhere else. So the blue is bluer than everywhere else. And uh, when I heard that, that 100% resonated with me, like the, the landscapes and nature here. I was never much of a nature person, but somehow I just, it's just fascinating to be here and I absolutely love it. I, I cannot imagine actually going back to busy Europe right now, <laughs> especially yeah, right now. Especially right now. Yeah, 100%. Now, now t- tell me, you're quite an active contributor back to the product management community. And one of the things that I discovered when I was preparing for this interview was an organization called Product League. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What is Product League and what is it that you do as a mentor for them? Yeah, Um, so Product League is an amazing uh, product management mentorship program. Uh, It's semi-structured, so they kind of give you a four-month time window and tell you you how much time to spend with uh, your mentee. So you're obviously being matched with the mentee. And... uh, they focus on um, product managers who are already kind of in the product management world. So it's, it's not so much like a super entry, how do I get into product management kind of mentorship, but it's more, um, I think the mentees have like a certain requirement of, of a couple of years of experience. And then the, men, the mentors like myself um, are required, I think it was five years or more experience in the product field as well. So it's kind of, I believe, tailored a bit more towards um, more experienced people in in that field. Um, And then they also do a lot with uh, events. I just actually joined one of their Ask Me Me Anything sessions yesterday, which was super fun talking about product analytics, uh, which I know we'll get into as well. (laughs) Um, So they're just super active, lots of events. And then they have a learning platform that comes with it and supports the mentee throughout the four months. So uh, it's awesome. It's my first run with them, but um, yeah, I can highly recommend it both for mentors and for mentees. I always say as a mentor, I feel like I'm sometimes learning just as much, if not even more than the <laughs> mentees as well. So I absolutely love it. And what was it that originally attracted you to it? You know, why have you decided to invest your time in this? And you're such a busy, you're such a busy role that why is this important to you? Mm. Um, this was actually the second uh, mentorship program I've joined this year. Uh, so it's quite ambitious <laughs> this year. Uh, the first one was um, a more local one called One Up, One Down. Um, it's, tar- I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's targeted more, uh, I think, just women, but uh, in the wider technology sector. So my mentee was actually in a design role. Um, but yeah, what got me into it in the first place was, I think, after a while, you know, if, if you do something, if you're passionate about something and you do it for a while, at some point, I just felt this, this desire to share and to help others with it. And obviously my role, you know, as I started to actually coach people and hire people here at Rome, um, I just realized how much I enjoy helping others, you know, do a great job and, and help others be successful. Um, so I just wanted to extend that and, you know, kind of on the line of giving back and, and sharing and helping other people in this industry. And I think specifically um, as, you know, as a female in this industry, um, 
probably also worth talking about. Uh, I, I think I've been thinking a lot about what can I do specifically, and I'm not. I'm not as a controversial topic, but I'm not the biggest fan of you know creating all these separate groups just for women because ultimately we're trying to you know just not even have this as a topic and point of discussion anymore. Like why why should it be? So I've been thinking, what can I really do uh, as a woman in tech? And I think one of the key things for me is just to kind of be visible out there and and talk to other people at different stages, maybe earlier stages in their product careers, and show them. You know, just be kind of uh, an approachable person. I'm just a normal person like everyone else as well. So it's totally doable. And I, I just hope it might encourage some people to get into product management, even though, yes, it's in tech and uh, it's, it's, it might be scary for some people. It's the same with data. I think I've, um, I've seen a lot of uh, peers in my field be kind of afraid of data. So I just want to go out there and say, it's not that scary. You can all do it. I'm not any smarter than you guys are. So that's kind of my way of hopefully helping a few others in this industry. Yeah, and it's it's so important. I think the, the motivation is, is critical for passing on that knowledge. And also, I mean, I really connect with what you've said about encouraging other people to, to give it a go by putting yourself out there. And I think that's a thing important for anyone that's watching today to realize is that it doesn't take a lot of confidence to give this a go and you won't regret it, whether it's talking at a meetup or whether it's doing a podcast or writing a blog. Um, it's really important that you, you give this a go if you believe that you have something worthwhile to share. And I'm also, for, the, for, the, for this show, I'm actually, uh, I would really love to hear from a more diverse range of people that, that are interested in coming on the show as well. I personally, I've found it um, much easier to find generally white males you know which is probably no surprise to a lot of people in tech um, because they're actually as, as far as I can tell anecdotally more actively putting themselves out there so I'm more likely to discover them and then more likely to invite them on but I really want to um, rebalance um, the guest uh, the guest roster a little bit as, as things go on. Now in your introduction I mentioned that you'd also been a developer and a UX designer before you got involved as a product management manager in the industry. Now, that, that's a really interesting career progression. Is there anything, what is it that connects those leaps together to eventually found product management, which seems like it's now your, I wouldn't say forever home, but it's certainly the, the area that you've really got into the most. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do think I found my <laughs> my spot. Yeah, um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think my study, or like just how I got into it in the first place, was already somewhat diverse. It was a really kind of newish uh, um, path at university back then. So I studied at home in Germany, and like you said in the in the intro, it was kind of like this mix of there was some development, but there was also some human centered design in there. Um, so I definitely learned like some basics of coding and I was really not the best at it, but I, I found it quite kind of cool and interesting. Um, but then at the same time, I also, the, my first job was actually at university. They had, um, back then they called it a usability testing lab. Um, and I, yeah, I started there. I thought it was a really cool opportunity for me to get some hands-on experience, not just theory. Uh, during my uni days and so I feel like I've had this mix of both the technical aspect and then the design and really the the user experience aspect 
from the start. Um, so I always loved the combination of both. Um, so that has kind of carried through throughout my career. And then at some point I realized that just the technical skills and just the design skills is also not everything, right? I really found that I didn't really have financial literacy or much knowledge about basic, you know, financial concepts and economics. Like that was like this whole area that I always thought like, oh, that's not for me. Um, so yeah, I tried to like just upskill in that area a little bit. And, and then I uh, actually, how I got specifically into product management or my first product manager role was actually quite a funny story yeah. <laughs> that um, my, yeah, our CEO at, at, at Rome likes to tell some people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, they were actually looking for a UX designer because um, when they approached me, I was, um, yeah, I was, I was still in a UX design role. And um, yeah, so I interviewed uh, at Rome for, for that role and uh, probably didn't hit the mark there, <laughs> but because uh, they had pretty high standards, um, they have an am amazing design culture here. Um, but then uh, they joked that I came prepared with like all these questions about their business and like this like prepared list um, that I kind of worked through throughout my interview. So they were like, wow, you're super organized and you know, you really try to understand the business. Like, how about, have you thought about product management? And I had, I just didn't think it would happen that soon. So that, that's kind of how the whole transition happened. I don't think I've told the story uh, in this forum yet. So um, yeah, it's kind of a funny story. Yeah, it's, and it's good to he hear this. And I can actually think of some parallels with my own story, but we're not here to talk about me. Uh, but well, I'd love to hear. No. Oh, <laughs> no, another time. Let's just say I wasn't the best designer or, or developer either, and I found that the management side of things was more 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 my home. But I think it's I think it's great that um, is it uh, who's the CEO? Is it Ben? Uh, Chris. Yeah, yeah. But Ben actually interviewed me before. Right. So it's great. I mean, it's, it's great that Chris and Ben were able to recognise that in you, and it, I suppose that sort of ties back to your super um, super German type A personality the the structure that you brought to that and that's obviously worked very well for you in this in this role and, and look it's only five years ago and I just want to to, to talk about um, building the practice a little bit because you've done that from nothing to 17 or so people at the moment in an incredibly short amount of time it's, it's look it's pretty impressive you know because the, the the growth curve that when you came to Rome you didn't even know what product management was well you did but you didn't have any experience in it and now you're leading this impressive team of 17 people i i know that people watching this are going to wonder how on earth you've done this what is your secret um i i don't know if there's a secret or a silver bullet um for this uh i think my previous experience has really helped. And I think especially, and, and you might be quite familiar with it uh, from my last role in a user experience role, I actually already did a lot of research and user testing. And then ultimately there was no, um, no product management role in that team I was working in. So I kind of started to really fill those gaps. So I feel like I had a bit of an unfair advantage and didn't have to start from scratch. So that, that definitely helped. Um, but no, I think I had some amazing mentors and people I learned from along the way. Um, I mean, specifically, yeah, Chris has a product management background himself from um, overseas. And uh, so he gave me kind of like this Bible, which is uh, Marty Kagan's book inspired uh, when I started. And 
that was like just a fun, fantastic foundation. Uh, but then, of course, it's also just, you know, exposing yourself to the practical side as well, which is um, important. No, no reading can really uh, teach you all about product management. Um, so at first, I just actually did the doing for quite some time before I started to actually grow a team. I think that's also really key. Um, obviously, as a manager or as a coach, you don't always have to be the absolute expert on every single field, right? Um, coaching is actually quite a different skill set uh, to doing it yourself. But of course, I had to build a basis myself first um, to know, you know, how does product management at Rome work? And how do we actually scale this? And how do I work with tech? How do I work with design? So I had to kind of establish that foundation first. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say for anyone going through this journey, um, having one or two people, and they don't have to be in, your, in the same role, right? Especially if you are the one growing a team, that usually means that there's no one like you or doing the same thing as you, you're kind of by yourself. So you have to be kind of comfortable with that, but then try to learn from other people as well, right? So let's say um, at the start, I didn't know, I haven't done interviews before, right? That was a complete new, new area for me. Um, but I realized some other people, you know, for, for the tech and the design area have done it. So I just asked them, you know, about some advice and, and how they went about some hiring decisions. And do you do two interviews, three interviews? How do you structure those interviews? Um, and I actually learned a lot from that. So if you're not in a position where you have a direct mentor of your skill, there's still a lot you can learn from, from other people at the same level with this really similar challenges, no matter what the skill is, right? Because growing teams, leading people, um, I think it's ultimately about the people more than it is about the skill. Uh, so that has really helped me. And uh, it sounds cliche, but like really reading a lot and immersing yourself with not just how people do it, maybe, you know, in your local community, I found, um, yeah, obviously New Zealand, the product community, uh, there's still a lot of work we have to do, I think. Uh, so I also made an effort to look at how do, you know, larger successful product tech companies run in Europe or in the States. Um, so that has really helped me get this kind of more global view to, to really progress the product management practice further to what, um, it could have been, or maybe some other companies in its early in the early stages did. Yeah, I think this is important as well. What you, what you've talked about here about looking outside of our local industry, because Rome is engaging with global brands and building products, not just for New Zealand companies. And um, having the ability to lift your perspective and learn and import some of those um, the knowledge and learnings from overseas, I think is really critical. What is the biggest mistake you feel that you've made in the past five years if you could do it again what would it be I think at the start as a manager like we've just talked about the transition kind of from doing the doing yourself and then leading others it is a very very different skill and I I definitely focus you know even in the hiring but then also in terms of the coaching too much on the, the technical skills as in like the technical product management skills um, rather than also kind of the, the human or the soft skills to the role. Um, so I was very focused on, you know, having the right documentation and having all the tools and frameworks and, you know, me just being me. <laughs> that was kind of 
the main thing I focused on. And I think if I had to, you know, do it all over again, I would, um, I just listened to, there was this amazing um, uh, webinar um, or book club session from Kate Leto. I don't know if you've um, uh, read about her latest book on hiring. She wrote a book about hiring product managers and she she describes as like 50-50 split of, of actual product management versus human skills that you need to A, hire for, and then B, also coach for, right? Um, and, and that is really something I, I just didn't know when I, when I started on this. And I think that's where then, you know, with early hires, the, most of the problems kind of uh, were more on the people side because I didn't hire maybe the right people for the, the human challenges that, that come with the product management role. Um, and I wasn't focused enough on also if there is a gap coaching them on how to, you know, it's a much harder area to, to coach on human skills than on very tangible product management skills. So that would be my number one area. Yeah, very good. And the, the, the complexity in managing other people and leading other people can't really be underestimated. And product management is a fairly new professional area. And just looking at your background, I mean, you, you came from design, UX design immediately beforehand. A lot of other people come from various different backgrounds before they become product managers as well, generally in tech, but but there's no sort of product manager finishing school as such that you can graduate from. Getting really practical here, what to you is the role of a product manager and what makes someone a great product manager? Yes, um, I think I've... Absolutely, yeah, absolutely agree with what you're saying. There are so many different flavors and, and definitions of, of what a product manager is, um, especially here in the local market, I found. Um, uh, there are still a lot of people who think that the product manager is more of, you know, the old notion of a product owner where you're just administrating and looking after a backlog, right? Like the, the requirements kind of uh, trickle from the top down and then you're there to actually flesh out requirements and then prioritize within that and then execute. Um, I think looking at the global product management scene, we have really moved on from that mindset. I think there is a lot more understanding now of the importance of product management and, and also the, I guess, the level of ownership and the level of experience and skills a real product manager needs to bring the, to the table. And it's actually, it's, it's probably one of the hardest roles um i find once you actually you know set the expectation of of what it is that a product manager should do um but yeah at a high level really as a product manager you're there to to combine all the aspects the the business viability the the user viability the technical viability um and and just making sure there is an actual demand uh, and business opportunity for your product combining all these four areas uh, to, to build successful products. Um, so it does require a good technical understanding. It, it requires a good focus on the end user, right? Working with design really closely, but also bringing the whole product design and product development closer to the business goal to really impact the business success. And I think especially that last bit has been a massive gap. And I think we're still all on this journey to um, make sure that product managers link the 
the product features and, and efforts closer to really impacting business success. So when we were talking about your biggest learning and the journey from being a product manager to leading other product managers, you touched on the um, importance of managing the, the software and the human side of things. Now, as the product manager, you are managing the tension between those, those different dimensions of product as we were speaking about. And there's often some very um, colorful personalities and, and forthright um, personalities that are involved in their own professions in these areas. What advice do you have for aspiring product leaders, people that are, are stepping up in their career, perhaps with an eye to where you've got to, to be able to manage those softer human factors more effectively as product managers? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest areas would be probably initiative and that business understanding or that empathy for the business stakeholders. Uh, I often find today product managers, they now have a really good understanding and focus on the, the user needs and, and really want to solve problems, right? Work really closely with the design team to, uh, to build uh, usable products that solve real problems. Um, but I think there is still this kind of divide between the business people and the business needs and the, the user side and the product needs. Um, so I think for a product manager on the more technical skill side, it's really important to, to build that strong understanding of how a product can lead to business success, right? To really bridge that, that gap. Um, and then on the more human or soft skills side of things, uh, really trying to, to speak the business stakeholders language and, and empathize with them. Um, there are a few techniques that, uh, one of them is from Ken Sandy, I think, uh, which I really like is, you know, just the, um, uh, rather than presenting, here's the product, here's the roadmap, here's what we're gonna do. Um, they call it shuttle diplomacy. So you go kind of from stakeholder to stakeholder and uh, get their thoughts and feedback early on, really bring them on the journey. So then when you present the final, you know, here are the product goals, here are the priorities, here's what we prioritize on the roadmap. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't come as a massive surprise and you get massive pushback. I think that is where I still see a lot of the tension coming in. Um, and that is really something that product managers, I think, need to overcome with strong communication skills, as well as empathy for the stakeholders, right? What are they trying to achieve? And, and ultimately also then sharing this back to the product team, right? Who are working on the, or designing and, and developing these features. How are those features actually gonna impact the business success and why is this important? Uh, again, I find often there is this big divide between the business goals and, and what the product team is trying to do. So this is really, something I think aspiring product managers uh, yeah, should focus on. Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear you describe this empathy that's required for people outside of your existing professional practice, in this case with a business stakeholder. It's bringing up a lot of uh, parallels to conversations that I've had with UX researchers mm -hmm. about their relationship with product managers, which is an area that I've been interested in exploring in this um, podcast. And it's fascinating that we seem to be so comfortable in our own practice areas, and yet we forget that we have the, the sort of superpower of empathy more broadly in technology, because we have a lot of it for our users. 
that we would be more effective if we were able to turn that uh, inside the organization towards the other people that are important in making world-class products. And, and I think uh, I just want people to, to um, really zero in on what you've just said here, because what you're, what you're saying is that if you're going to become a leader of product within your organization, you really need to understand that a lot of that relies on other people outside of your uh, VP area or your, your domain uh, buying into and bringing them along the journey to what it is that you're trying to achieve with the products. And that's really one of the key parts of your role. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a huge skill. And it's a hard skill as well, <laughs> but it's absolutely critical. 100%. Now let's turn our attention to something that uh, is very, very uh, close to your heart, which is data and analytics in products. Now this is a fascinating and incredibly deep and wide area to talk about. Um, and most people, I, would, I think it's fair to say, probably don't get super excited about this. So I'm, I'm excited about this. I know you're excited about this. And I'm sure at the end of this, other people will be excited about this too. So... Why are you so passionate about data-driven decisions and analytics and products? Well, first of all, I love that you're excited about it too. <laughs> I don't know. It's really not as dry as people think, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, I think also going back to those, those tensions sometimes with stakeholders, often this is because people come have strong opinions, right? Our stakeholders have strong opinions. The CEO of your company might have strong opinions about where the product should go. You as a product manager, you think you know it better because you're so close to the customer. Uh, so you have a strong opinion. So really the key for me is to, to bring more data to those discussions, which I think will really help with uh, a lot of the tensions that we have in the day-to-day. -day. So that is kind of the, the very first part. Uh, but also, I before I got really into product analytics, I I didn't know what I was missing. But once you see it, once you get more comfortable with it, um, it was the same with me with with maths during my study. I was like, how how the hell am I going to get through these semesters of engineering uh, maths? And it sucked at first. But then once you get more confident with something, you start to kind of enjoy it. Um, so the same, I think, goes for, for, for analytics and, and dealing with data. Um, the first step, I think, for people is probably the hardest. Uh, but once you get better and more confident in it, it's actually quite enjoyable. And then just some of those insights I have found through data on some of the products that I've worked on that otherwise we would have just, you know, kept uh, kind of stumbling in the dark or throwing out opinions. And it really kind of shaped the conversations um, and, and suddenly everyone was on the same page. And of course, I don't think just looking at data is, is the holy grail and you should not uh, look into anything else. You know, there's, I think, a strong case uh, also for, you know, a certain product judgment and, and intuition, um, but also obviously talking, just talking to your customers, right? Quality data is, is just as important. So I'm not here to say uh, data will solve all your problems. Um, but it is a really, really critical part. And specifically product managers, I find, often see this as someone else's responsibility, right? They might think, oh, it's you know, the product analyst job, but not every company 
has the luxury of having like a data analyst, a data science scientist. So then it just kind of gets overlooked and, and no one picks it up. Um, and ultimately the product manager is driving all those decisions in the day-to-day -day and is, is there to prioritize and justify to the stakeholders why they're prioritizing what they're prioritizing. And um, so really product analytics is, is one of the key data sources that I think a product manager should take into account together with you know, the, the human kind of insights through qualitative research together with sales and marketing insights. Um, so product analytics is not the, the all and everything but it is one of the critical parts that I think is often overlooked. And I looked through actually, um, I did a talk on this, this was part of my talk uh, earlier this year on product analytics. I went through, I think nine or 10 years of, of talks um, at Mind the Product, which is a huge, probably one of the biggest uh, product management conferences. And there was zero, nada, nothing on data and product analytics. It's just kind of this assumed thing that you make data driven decision, but no one actually tells you how to. So. The very long answer to your question. I think there are <laughs> many reasons why I'm really excited about it. And also, yeah. I think data really helps you with some of those tensions with your stakeholders, which is probably one of the biggest complaints I hear about yeah. um, product management and the challenges that people have. And I think that point's really insightful because what it sounds like you're saying is that if you have a good grasp as a product manager, or anyone in the product team, quite frankly, on the analytics and you know what it is that you're, you're tracking and, and why, that helps your business stakeholders to feel more comfortable with what it is that you're saying or trying to do. It's the language of business or, almost uh, is numbers. And a lot of people in business, while qual is really important and a whole bunch of UX researchers breathe a huge sigh of relief when you said yes. that. Um, it, it, it's often seen as softer and analytics is what provides people with more certainty. That's exactly right. And it comes back to the speaking the language of your stakeholders, right? Which often are the business stakeholders. And yeah, at the end of the month, they look at their balance sheet, they look at their profit and loss. So, you know, if you can come to the party and show that you understand that this data is important and, and link how your product impacts those numbers, I, I think you'll, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll make really good uh, progress with those relationships with your stakeholders. One of the recent conversations I had was with Luke Hay, who's a UX researcher, but also has a big, um, big focus on analytics. And in his case, he provides training uh, in Google Analytics. And he was telling me that there's, in GA, the most basic albeit very complicated and complex analytics product that you can get, the most accessible one, there's 500 default reporting views. So when it comes to product, and obviously there are specific product analytics packages, and you've written about some of those on your blog, there are an, almost an endless thing, a sea of things and metrics you could track. And one of the posts that I read of yours, though, you, you talked about this notion of a product north star. What is a product North Star and why is that helpful to a product manager when deciding what it is that you should be tracking? Mm. So product North Star is something that I've been starting to actively use uh, earlier this year um, on various products and I've, I've helped uh, other product managers and my team adopt it as well. Um, and it's been a, a huge step forward, I think. Um, so product North Star, uh, the concept I think it's been thrown around for a while, but uh, especially this year, um, the product analytics tool Amplitude 
uh, has really started to evangelize the use of product North Stars. Um, and uh, they did a great webinar on this. John Cutler uh, was running that. He's a great advocate of, of um, product analytics and product intelligence uh, for building products. Um, so the, the concept is really that it all comes back to kind of the product and the business and how do you link it back together. So it's, it's funny that we're talking about analytics now, but it comes back to some of the same themes we already touched on, right? So usually you have a business goal that is a financial goal, let's say. You want to hit X, X amount of revenue growth uh, for the year. And then the, the product manager somehow has to prioritize features uh, based on what we think will hit those business goals. And that inherently is, is a really, really tough thing to do. So the product North Star is, is a framework that really helps you create this link between the business goals and, and the kind of product metrics, right? So you might measure in the day-to-day, -day, what is my sign-up rate? What is the churn? What is the engagement? And so on and so forth. But that doesn't help you to connect it to the actual business goal. How does this uh, activation rate or this engagement link to uh, the revenue goal, that's not usually quite very clear. So the product North Star kind of sits in between the day-to-day -day product metrics you measure and the financial business goal. So think of it as um, uh, a, a, a leading indicator because waiting for uh, the end of year report to see have you hit your revenue goal or not. You know, the year has passed. There's nothing you can change anymore about it. You either find out you've hit the goal, you, you, you missed it. So the, the product North Star um, is, is a product goal uh, or a metric really that is your, your kind of God metric that, that everyone in the company should understand. And, and this product metric should be an early indicator that tells you throughout the year whether you're on the right track to hit your business goals later on. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's very abstract still. Uh, so as an example, uh, Velo, the product that I look after, it's a visitor management system. Uh, it's, it's kind of one of these, you know, when you visit a business and there's usually this old clunky uh, uh, system that you sign in and, and tell who you're here to see. So we, it's basically like a way nicer version of it for an iPad app that you can put on the reception. And um, the, the value of our differentiator is really the, the experience, right? It's the first thing that people see when they come into uh, your office. Uh, so the, the branded experience and the good user experience is really our differentiator. So that's how people get the most value out of the product. So in our case, the, the product North Star is the percentage of customers who have uh, kind of set up the iPad, right? Installed the, the iPad app and branded it with their brand colors, their brand logo. So there's this whole bunch of customization you can do to make it look super awesome. That's kind of what our product North Star is. So in the day-to-day, -day, when we're discussing different ideas or different opportunities or different, uh, yeah, different features we could, we could build, we think about, will it help us reach the product North Star goal, right? Will it help us increase the percentage of customers who connect an iPad and set it up in this awesome branded way? Um, so that's kind of the, the God metric, that one overarching thing that we, uh, strive for, and that doesn't change. Um, so assuming your product strategy doesn't change, uh, the, the product North Star is really around the value that your users get out of your product. Um, but then underneath this product North Star, uh, you then have certain 
uh, metrics that contribute to it. So again, one is the, I mean, the, the key categories we use is the reach, how many signups do you get? The other one is the activation rate. So there's usually some sort of feature that you want your customers to use within the first 30 days of using your product, right? That means they're, they're activated, they understand this is what they can do with the product. Then there's engagement, which is how often do they come back and use whatever the most important feature or way to engage with your product is. And then there's, there's your long-term retention. Uh, you know, how long do they keep using your product on a monthly basis or how, when do they churn? So those are kind of the, the four areas that all kind of impact the product North Star. So bear with me, I know this is a very lengthy answer to your <laughs> question. Um, but basically it, it just solves a whole bunch of uh, friction points I have seen over the last few years um, because it gives you focus, right? Uh, most product teams really track too much <laughs> rather than uh, knowing what to really look for. So that product North Star really gives you focus on, okay, let's let's try to try to tweak these metrics and see if it impacts our product North Star. And if it impacts our product North Star, we have the hypothesis that it will impact the, the business goal in the long term. And then obviously at the end of the year, you see, is this true? You might have to tweak the product North Star, but uh, generally um, uh, th this is a good way to find those early indicators. And it also removes the need to focus on, uh, you know, is it just acquisition that you're after? Is it just retention? It's a very common discussion uh, I hear almost every product team has <laughs> every now and then. Um, it actually shows that, you know, you, you kind of need both in the end. You need, and depending on your product lifecycle stage, the focus might shift, but this really, this framework really visualizes very well how you need both the initial reach as well as the activation, which is actually a very overlooked metric, uh, and the engagement and retention to all contribute to that North Star to then create real business impact. It sounds incredibly useful. And it makes, you talk about it as the God metric and the way that the other metrics feed into it. How do you find God? What does that, you know, what does it look like? What does that process look like? <laughs> um, so it depends on your life cycle stage of the product. Um, we, I, there was one example of a, a B2B product um, that I've been working on, which is a, a data aggregator tool. Um, uh, so without naming any names, uh, I'll try to give you a bit of context. So, so the value is really rather than logging into seven different tools to get different bits of data, you, you have it all combined in a really nice um, feed of, of easy to digest insights. So at the very early stage before we launched, I had a hypothesis that, you know, the value is really the aggregation part, right? It's, it's meant to save you time and help you understand your data. So my hypothesis was that as you connect more integrations and more apps into the product, the more value you will get out of it. And, and usually if you have a strong value proposition defined for your product and there's really like a clear pain point you're solving, there should be a fairly easy question to answer for your product. Um, but then once you actually launch, uh, you can do some simple data analysis to find uh, and actually a lot of the product analytics tools do that for you. Um, back then, that was one thing where I asked data scientists to help me because I had no idea how to, to run this kind of analysis. But now both Mixpanel and Amplitude actually have this feature where you can kind of find a, a correlation between, uh, so they, they analyze who are your most engaged 
uh, or long-term retained customers and what was the activation step that they took in the first place. So basically you can ask the product analytics tools, um, tell me how many of the people who used feature X or did this in this time frame, whatever it is, and, and then stayed uh, long-term retained customers. So it kind of tells you this correlation and uh, that's not causation. So it doesn't tell you, you know, this is just the data. It can tell you this is an indicator. This could be true. You still need to actually validate uh, with customer interviews later on. Uh, is this really true? But so basically uh, back then when uh, I had a data scientist help me with that, he ran this report of um, trying, basically trying different uh, events and, and different user actions and how have they led to higher uh, retention in the long run, right? This is kind of what you, what you want to find. And that's why I also shared just before that activation is really key. Uh, what is that activation action that you want your users to take within the first X days of using your product so they can really understand what the value of your product is? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that you've covered there. One of the one of them is the fact that you're looking for a um, a leading set of indicators that are tied back to a north star, so that you can actually make informed decisions on product sooner rather than waiting for the end of a reporting period and then trying to figure out what hasn't been working. I think that's really really important. You've also talked about the um, need for a hypothesis in the first place. Is that there's sort of no mystical magical answer here you've got to engage your brain you've got to put out some assumptions and then you've got to be able to validate that both within the product analytics but also then to ask the why question you know is this true is this true causation uh, but by doing some qual or some uh, some customer interviews and i think that's also like really key before we move on to, yes. the, to the to the next um, topic area for us to cover today this is obviously quite an important area as the product management field matures. And you you kind of threw yourself in the deep end here and didn't really have a lot of help to begin with. What can you say to people that might be at the beginning of their analytics journey? You know, what sort of things should they be asking or doing to get a better grasp on analytics so that they can be more effective product managers? Mm. The, the first thing I would probably recommend is, is to get a good basic understanding of what good metrics look like. I think historically, uh, I've seen it a lot, people chase a lot of vanity metrics. So um, that's really uh, a critical foundation, I think, uh, to read up on first. So there's a book I can highly recommend. It's actually from the, from the Lean Startup book series, which is amazing. All of those books are great. Um, but uh, there's one uh, on Lean Analytics, and I read that many, many years ago, uh, the first time, and it was such an eye-opener to me, just some really basic stuff that I didn't know first, right? Like, what are good metrics? Um, so one of the things being, like, don't look at total numbers. You always try to find, like, ratios, right? You do that actually in financials as well. You look at kind of profit margins, right? Those are kind of those percentages that really give you a better indication of whether something is good or bad. Uh, so yeah, just understand first what are good metrics. Um, I think also one of the first mistakes I've made was to just track absolutely everything and then look for, <laughs> for useful insights later on. Um, so 
rather than trying to track everything and then doing this kind of exploratory data analysis, which is actually super hard to do. Like I can ask a data scientist to do that because they're skilled in it, but um, I, I certainly wouldn't be. So start with a few key metrics first. I think what I ran through before, you know, if you can at least get a good understanding and make sure your metrics work well for uh, the initial reach, how many signups, what's your activation rate, what is your monthly active user engagement metric? And what is your long-term retention? Like those are four areas that if you talk to most product teams, uh, it, they don't even have a good understanding. They can't even recall what those numbers currently are. So I would say, look no further. Don't try to track absolutely every possible user action there is to do. Just focus on getting the basic metrics uh, right. And then as you get more comfortable, you can expand from there. So I think a bit of a mix of the theoretical knowledge, right? What are good metrics? And then using a framework like the product Northstar and those, those four key metrics that you can just start tracking um, is, is probably best, but you just, you, you do have to throw yourself into it. <laughs> and yeah. the, I, I think I talked about this actually yesterday in the, uh, the product league session a lot. Um, I really think the product manager just needs to, to take the initiative here uh, to get more comfortable with data. And it's, it's really not about uh, getting super deep into machine learning and, and predictions or any of that or any complex uh, queries, but you know, get a simple tool like Mixpanel Amplitude are both amazing product analytics tools um, that are fairly simple to set up. You need a bit of dev help, but then you can create your own dashboards and play with it and then really just gain the confidence over time. I think the key is more to get started, to make data part of your day-to-day -day conversation, to make it accessible to the product team as well. And, and from there, you'll just get more experience and more confident with the data. Yeah, just get involved. And I, I suppose the user, user researchers, UX researchers will also love you for it because you might be able to highlight really interesting areas for them to go and investigate as well if they're not already doing this work in product analytics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, back to the example I shared before with the data aggregation tool. Um, once I had the, the report in front of me, there was this clear uh, correlation between people who integrate at least uh, X amount of apps, they actually have a 20% higher engagement later on. That was absolutely eye-opening for me. And again, you still have to then go on and and, and validate that with, with um, following up with users and actually talk to them. Uh, but that was just such a crucial moment uh, in our, for our product team. And then we, we knew very clearly, okay, let's optimize our onboarding experience for that, right? It really gives you focus, uh, which comes back to a lot of the tensions that we have. How do we prioritize uh, and, and why are we doing what we're doing? How do we explain this to stakeholders? It's often because it's not a problem of the prioritization process or method. It's actually a, a, a lack of focus um, of, of what to optimize for in the first place. So yeah, it all goes full circle. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's so important and everything's so interconnected, as you've said, and I, I really like the simplicity in that of just having this focus that analytics can provide. So systems and productivity, right? This is also something that you're, you're really, really into. And, I know that because I was reading through your blog and back in June, you implemented a new system for managing your time. And I believe the post started off by explaining that Bill Gates and Elon Musk 
schedule every five minutes of their day. You didn't go down to that degree, but what was it that prompted you to have another look at how you were managing your time and what changes did you, did you make? Yeah, especially as, you know, all of our lives are getting busier and busier and my role was getting busier and then I wanted to do all this upskilling in my free time and I started to do writing and, and there were just so many things I wanted to do. And so I realized that managing time, managing your own time is really the superpower that uh, that all of us kind of need and can benefit from because time is the you know, it's one of those resources you just can't, you can't buy back. So um, it's, it's really, really crucial. And especially, I think it was the first, yeah, it was the first lockdown this year for us in New Zealand here. Um, I had a really tough couple weeks where I just felt like I've been in reactive mode for, for several weeks. And I felt awful. It was really stressful for me. Um, I was quite deep into uh, uh, some of the things we were working on on the visitor management system, uh, and it was all really important. So I couldn't really take my foot off. But at the same time, I was, um, despite obviously the lockdown stress was one thing, but I just felt stuck in this reactive mode. And there were all these things I wanted to do. I felt like I didn't have, didn't have any time for any actual focus time, real product management work. I was just kind of putting out fires, being really reactive. So. Um, I had this, yeah, just this moment where I was like, okay, I've got to change something about it. Um, and the system that I implemented, I, I basically read, uh, yeah, I read about Bill Gates and, and how crazy they manage their time. And uh, I'm not that type A, I cannot, <laughs> I do not want to manage every five minutes of my day. Um, but what I did really learn from it, and, and the more reading I did was, being more proactive about your time uh, is actually this big stress reliever as well for people, right? If you're in this firefighting mode, it's you just kind of feel helpless. So it was kind of a, a self-fulfilling need for me to to get uh, to get more pro uh, productive, but also to reduce my stress levels simply. Okay, so some of the the things that I then started to play with and implementing it is um, kind of blocking out focus time proactively. So I would think about the week coming up and what is it that is the number one priority, right? What is the thing that if I go home at the end of the week and I finish that, I'll be super, you know, there are some of those days where you just feel super happy about uh, whatever you accomplish that day. So I wanted to make sure I have that every week. And so uh, I started to block out certain hours throughout the week uh, where I can actually spend focus time. And, and for me or for my kind of rhythm, I found that doing this first thing in the morning was the best because if I just log into Slack and email and then I see all these things I need to respond to, I'm already, the, the day's already gone. <laughs> I'm now stuck in reactive mode, right? It's a very uh, <laughs> human thing to do. So I like to schedule my focus time, two, three hours max. Actually, to be honest, if you get two hours of focus time, that's already really good. Some people ask, uh, what about meeting free days? I, I don't really believe in that, the effectiveness of this. If you have too much free time, you sometimes just waste your whole day because it doesn't have any constraints, right? So constraints are good. So what I do is I block the first couple hours in my day to do whatever is the most important thing in my day. And I try to, this to be uninterrupted, get this out of the way. 
And then I can spend the rest of my day in meetings, right? So all my meetings, I try to, to schedule just past lunch and that works actually quite well. Uh, and then also any reactive time uh, and replying to Slack and email is, is then more towards the second half of the day. And that has made a huge difference. So that, that technique is just simply uh, time blocking, but also task batching. So, you know, if you switch from focus time to kind of replying to emails to then back to focus time, uh, that's really inefficient. That's where multitasking is, is, is really, really inefficient for us. So uh, kind of batching the, this is not a very scientific term, but the kind of different mental modes that you have to have in the day-to-day, -day, right? Like again, replying to messages or, or drafting up, doing some research and some reading and drafting up a new uh, product strategy or whatever, that, that requires very different modes of thinking. So if you switch back from one to the other too many times throughout the day, you feel A, very burnt out and B, it's not very effective in terms of getting stuff done. So that has worked really well. Um, I, I don't think meeting free days is, is the, uh, the goal, but having some constraints because I know in the morning, okay, I have these two hours. This is what I want to get done. Uh, and then whatever comes in the rest of the day, whatever fires I have to put out, it's fine because I've already done the most important thing in the day. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really critical, this time blocking and task batching. I really like that. In fact, it reminds me of a, a couple of things, actually. Paul Graham's essay on the maker manager schedule that he wrote. Yes. We yes. link to that in the show notes as well. And you touched on what's that you mentioned the one thing that I need to get done today. Now, uh, Gary Keller, I believe, wrote a book called The One Thing. And what you've described is, is, is a good core part of what his philosophy is as well. So I'll link to that as well. Now, being mindful of time, we're almost at time. <laughs> and so your, your alarm bells will probably be going off. And I know mine are as well. So I've got to, I'm going to bring us down to a close now. And I, I wanted to um, ask a few questions and clothing, closing, not clothing, closing. If there was one thing that you wish that people in other product related roles, so the people that aren't in the product management discipline, but are very integral to the delivery of world-class products. If there was one thing that you wish they understood about the challenges of being a product manager, what would that be? I think it would be the understanding of that there will always be constraints. And I think working with constraints is one of the hardest things to, to accept, but also the one constant thing that will always be part of building any product and to be honest, building any business. Yeah, yeah, really important. And I think everyone else listening to this, that's the one empathetic thing that you can do when you're engaging with the product manager is consider the constraints that may be on that person. Let's play a really quick game. It's called What Comes to Mind. We're gonna go through this super quick, I promise. What I'll do is I'll, I'll say a word and then you'll think of a word, the first thing that comes to mind, or it could be a picture, or it could be whatever it is that you think of, and then you just tell me what that thing is. Okay? Okay. Are you ready? Yes. The first word is vanity metric. Terrible. <laughs> the next word is slack. Distraction. 
And the last word is control. Balance. I like it. I like it. No judgment. There's no right or wrong. I should have said that. <laughs> it's harder than it seems. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I've got the easy job here asking the question. In the hot seat. So tell me, over the next 10 years, so thinking ahead to 2030, and I know no one can predict the future, but what is your greatest hope for the profession of product management? My greatest hope is really that, I call them kind of product operators, uh, that we will become real operators of products to really impact business success and, and business results, really. Um, I think it's uh, a big challenge ahead of us, but it's already been moving towards this direction, uh, which I'm really happy about. It's really not about managing a backlog anymore. It's uh, really about stepping up, taking ownership, understanding the business side and combining that, of course, with the customer side and the tech side, which I think we're already doing quite well. So really uh, linking our product teams closer to the business, that is my biggest hope and I think it's actually wider than just the product manager's role I think it will greatly benefit you know all the product teams that are actually working on these features right um, motivating them that what they're working on really has an impact to the business and the user ultimately so this is this is kind of my greatest hope I hope we'll get there actually sooner than 2030 to be honest <laughs> yeah let's hope so and that's a really great place to close out the show Karina, look, it's been so great having you on the show. You're our very first product manager that's been on Brave UX. And I just want to say thank you so much for so generously sharing with us your knowledge and your experiences. Thank you so much, Brendan. I hope uh, that was a lot of pressure to be the first uh, PM on your show. <laughs> I hope I, I did it justice. Um, that was uh, a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. You've set the bar really high. And <laughs> I have no doubt that today has been super useful for both the UX researchers and the other professionals that listen to the show. Thank you for helping us to put some of those pieces of the product puzzle together. Uh, tell, tell us, like, what is the best way that if anyone wanted to connect with you to get in touch? Uh, probably either LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, pretty active on on both. Um, we'll link to those. We'll link to it. Yeah. yeah 100%. <laughs> Do the same for Twitter. It's probably easiest. Perfect. Thanks, Karina. To everyone that's tuned in, thank you as well. Everything that we've covered included all the awesome books that Karina's mentioned and the various um, uh, organizations that she is involved in. We'll be linking to in the show notes on YouTube. Um, if you want to hear more of these kinds of conversations with amazing professionals like Karina, please remember to like the video and, and leave us a comment if there's anything you wanted to know more about and subscribe to the channel. And until next time, everybody, keep being brave.